Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're talking about what I would assume is the least popular of the commandments. If, if God had written nine commandments, he'd be reasonably uh, in vogue. He would, um, people would think he's a pretty good God. But this one bothers people no end. And this one has bothered my generation no end. Uh, I'm the baby boom generation. And... Uh, we have organized our entire generation, our life, around uh, our sexuality. If you look at the political issues that we deal with and we bring up and we fight over, they all have a sexual root, every one of them. From AIDS, abortion, uh, well, I guess prayer in school wouldn't have, but uh, that would be about the only thing that we missed, you know that doesn't have somehow a sexual root. The symbol for my generation is, is an apple with a bite taken out of it. And that was, we started that a long time ago. Apple computer picked it up. But it's, it's, it's the thing. And the idea is that that's the apple in the Garden of Eden that, that Adam and Eve ate. And, and the myth is, which has nothing to do with reality, God had not forbidden them to have sex. Uh, I'm not going there, but let's just, just say that. Anyhow. And the, but the thought was that God didn't like sex and that, you know, they had sex in his garden and he was ticked off and he threw them out. And that they took the bite out of the apple. And so my generation has sort of said, oh, yeah, God, we're going to do it. And indeed we have. And um, so of all the commandments that has been the most awkward for us and the most troubled for us, and we've certainly passed our failure and our trouble down to our children and to our grandchildren, and we have brought, we have changed the culture of our nation. We've changed every institution we've touched. And the heart of our issues are always our sexuality. We started out with a free speech movement, if you recall. And the free speech wasn't that we wanted free religious speech. We didn't want free political speech. It had nothing to do with any of those things. We wanted to say dirty things in public. We wanted to talk about sex and say sexual things and blasphemous things in public and have no one tell us we couldn't. That was our rallying cry. What a great generation, huh? Aren't, aren't you glad you know Jesus Christ? Aren't you glad that you now have him in your life? And aren't you glad that as you walk with him, you now are a blessing to our society? That you're, you're salt and you're light to a society instead of continuing the trouble that we brought to so many? God, is, God has given us a real charge. So when I touch on the subject today of, of adultery, which is the commandment, you know, do not commit adultery. Uh, we go right to the heart of a whole social issue. I mean, this is, this is probably, it's one of the, it's, this is a hard sermon to preach, frankly. And, and I'm not going to rail on today, just for a moment. No. No, I'm not. I'm actually going gonna, gonna to talk to you about the covenant of marriage. I'm going to look at the positive side of this, what it is that, it, that God wanted. And so I'm talking today really about the ideal and I want, to, want you to know that I fully realize that I'm talking to many people who've had all kinds of trouble in their marriage. There's many people who've got divorces, who've been abused and battered and all kinds of things. And I'm not going to deal with the subject of what is permissible in divorce and try to, or that kind of stuff and answer all of those questions because I'll just go off in a million uh, rabbit trails if I do. It'll be, it'll be uh, confusing and muddled. I'm going to simply focus on what God, God's ideal is. What it is he wants for marriage. This is a limited focus today. We're going to talk about the covenant of marriage. What is the covenant of marriage? Because adultery is the violation of that covenant. It's not every sexual sin in the world. It's the violation and the breaking of that covenant. Holy Spirit, we ask you today to come upon us and help us know your word. We would know it, we would obey it, and we would be blessed. And Lord, my generation, we need to hear and understand. We need to bring life and not death. We need to be salt and light 
to our society. Would you help us understand this, Lord? We've still got time to be a blessing and not a curse. And we ask you, Lord, for your grace upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, it is not uncommon to hear the term sexual revolution applied to the dramatic changes our society is undergoing in its thinking about sexual behaviors. Those who use this term assume that a new view of sex is emerging out of the uninformed bigotry of our cultural past. But that's not what's happening at all. Only the, the only real sexual revolution in human history has been produced by the Bible. What's happening in America and Europe is that many are simply returning to the primitive sexual behaviors that dominated the ancient world before the Bible arrived. Let me stop there for a minute. The world into which the Bible was introduced was a world that every kind of perverse sexual behavior was just rampant. The Bible, with its standards such as a man and a woman committed for life, was a radical sexual revolution. Into a world in which anything went, and it was absolutely the norm, and it was religiously endorsed by the various religions, that was the norm of the world. Here comes the Bible with a radical concept that God had made a man and a woman, and he wanted a faithful marriage for as long as you live. That you're to be committed mentally and physically to that person. It was, it was a bombshell in a, in a swamp of sexual behavior. What's happening in America today is not that we're discovering something new or pressing some new frontier. We are simply reverting back to primitive sexual activity. We are becoming as it were, uh, reprimitized, or I don't know if you can, I just coined, I tried to coin a word and didn't even do it. <laughs> Primitivized, or, anyway. We're going back, not forward. Infidelity and promiscuity were actually sanctioned and practiced by the official religions of the rest of the ancient Near East. All of them. Sacred prostitution, you would go to the temple and actually visit a prostitute, a male or a female, as part of your worship. Regular prostitution, homosexuality, bestiality, transvestiture were common in the ancient world, far more than we have today. We're prudes by comparison. So as we turn to the seventh commandment, we encounter a radically new way of thinking about sex. The idea that it should be only between a man and a woman and that it should only take place after a lifelong commitment has been made is so unnatural to human thinking that it could only have come from God. There's not a human on earth that would have ever produced the seventh commandment. <laughs> it is not our nature. We get so frustrated with each other. We want to dump each other. We want, you know, the whole idea of... It's just not a human concept. It came only from God. Again, like the sixth commandment, he required only two words to say bluntly, no adultery, or adulterize not. To understand this commandment, we will first define the term adultery, then reflect on the nature of the marriage covenant, and finally consider seven attitudes essential if we are to succeed in obeying it. The commandment, of course, says this, simply, you shall not commit adultery, verse 14. What is adultery? It is, the, it is disloyalty to the marriage covenant. There are a number of Hebrew terms that refer to different kinds of sexual sin, sexual activity. God chose this one, and this one is very specific. It says, do not, basically, do not violate the marriage covenant. There are many different types of sexual activity forbidden by God, but adultery refers specifically to the breaking of this promise. So I'm going to focus today on looking at what is the promise that's made. What is the covenant of marriage? Would you turn with me to Matthew 5? Jesus again comments on this commandment. This is, from this, this is his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 
It was the person in the cloud on Mount Sinai who wrote the Ten Commandments was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the one through whom the Father has always worked with this planet. So he wrote the thing with his own finger, probably just a Shekinah glory, wrote it into the rock. Moses had brought those tablets of stone up and he just inscribed, adulterize not. Just right with his finger. So he knew what he meant when he wrote it. So now he's explaining to us, by the way, this is what I meant when I wrote those words. Verse 27, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or at a man, it would have meant, with lust for her or him has already committed adultery with her or him in his heart. Jesus is explaining that this disloyalty can be mental as well as physical. God is forbidding us to be disloyal to our commitment to the person he has given us, not only in body, but in mind. Wow, when I say this commandment would never have been written by a human, you can see why. This thing goes right against our fallen nature. I've been using the term covenant. I'm talking about the covenant of marriage. I want to define for you what a covenant is for a minute. A covenant is a solemn promise made with God as a witness asking him to punish me if I break it. Did you realize that? It's a religious vow. Covenant is not, is, is not just any old agreement. It's a, an agreement made in the presence of God or in the pagan world, the presence of the gods, asking him to punish me if I break it. When you hear people say, I swear to God, what they mean is, God, listen to me now and punish me if I violate my, if I don't, if I'm not telling you the truth. I don't think they realize what they're saying or they probably wouldn't say it. It's one of those dumb things that we kind of fall into. A marriage is a covenant. That's why it's held in a church. That's why people stand before the Lord and make the promises they do, having invoked the Lord and calling upon him to hear their promises to one another. And implicit in that is, Lord, I, I promise to do this, and if I break my promise, deal with me. You know, I think that would probably explain certain things that have gone on in people's lives. Some of the troubles that have come. We have actually invoked that, and he has followed through with that. So it's not a thing you want to take lightly. It's not a thing you want to turn your back on. There is a sober quality to a true covenant. What takes place in a wedding ceremony? That's, I want to look at that for a minute because I don't think we often understand when people get married what it is that's happening. A man and a woman make a solemn promise, make a covenant to each other with God as their witness. Have you ever heard people say, oh, marriage is just a piece of paper? <laughs> oh, no, it's not. And they know it. That's why they avoid it like the measles. It is anything but just a piece of paper. It is a sobering, awesome situation, isn't it? No, it's no piece of paper. I often quip back to them, no, marriage isn't a piece of paper, but divorce is. Yeah, you, you, can, you can go through any ceremony you want, but your heart's still attached, and you've got all kinds of pain that comes from divorce. Let me just run through for a minute uh, a marriage ceremony. You know, there is only one point in the marriage ceremony where the covenant is actually being made. Most of what happens in a wedding is not the covenant. For example, you start out, and the first thing is, is, is everybody comes in, and they, they're all being seated by the ushers, you know? Everybody gets seated, and if there's a couple comes in, the usher offers the woman his arm and walks in, the man walks behind, you know? And, and you're seated. And so you spend quite a bit of time getting everybody just in their seats. And then, then the next thing is the family comes in, and they're seated, and grandma and grandpa, and, and finally the parents. And then what happens? Well, then in comes the groomsman and, and the groom, and they come in from the side, and they 
march in and they, 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 they stand there. And then, then the music amps up and it's time for the bridesmaids to, to come on in. And the bridesmaids all come in. And they take their positions along the side. Now the music really hits it. Here comes the bride. Dun, 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 dun. And down the aisle comes the, the bride with her father escorting her. I've done this twice. And uh, then they, sta they stand, they come to the, the, the foot of the stairs and the groomsman's there. And, and um, the, uh, the pastor says, uh, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And, and uh, the father, if he can remember to say it, says, uh, her mother and I do. And uh, then he lets go of his daughter and gives her to her future husband. And he steps back and sits down. Then they together come up and stand before the pastor. All of that was simply positioning. Do you see that? That isn't a covenant. Nothing's happened yet. We've just all gotten into position. Everybody's sitting where they belong, standing where they belong. It's all there. Now, the next portion, the center, the center part, is the wedding itself. What happens there is that you start out usually with what's called the pastor's charge. And that does not mean that we run down the aisle. The pastor's charge is that the pastor basically has a, has a short, brief sermon, and the whole point of it is to say, do you two really re realize what you're getting yourself into? That's the heart of it. You're going to make a solemn covenant. Do you realize the implications of what you're entering into? Let me remind you of it before you make a vow you don't want to keep. That's the purpose of the pastor's charge. Then comes the vows. Now we're at the covenant. Now listen to the covenant itself. This is, this is the heart of the thing, is when the man and the woman are promising before God to each other things like this. To the, the pastor would say to the groom, do you take this woman as your wife? Will you pledge yourself to her in all love and honor, in all duty and service, in all faith and tenderness to live with her and cherish her according to the ordinance of God, in the holy bond of marriage? So say I do. I do. Then turn to her and make this profession of your faith. I take you, so-and-so, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God. Notice those words. Promise and covenant before God. And these witnesses, to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, for how long? As long as we both shall live. As long as we both shall live. In other words, I can't see whether we're going to have trouble ahead, poverty or riches, sickness or health. But I'm not making a promise contingent upon good weather and, and, and happy things. I'm making a promise to you that even when it goes badly, even when there's trouble ahead, I will continue to love you and be faithful to you. Be loyal to you, basically. Loyal to you above all others. And then the same thing would be said to the, to, the, to the woman and she would make the same sort of pledge. Then you have a presentation of rings. Now there's something usually is said about them being a symbol of eternity and of all of this. Bottom line, what they say is, I'm taken. I am not a player anymore. <laughs> Leave me alone. I belong to somebody. That's what they mean. Then there is the pronouncement. You'd ask them to join their hands, and the pastor, having recognized that the covenant is now sealed, the promises have been made, the heart of that marriage has just taken place, would say something like this. As a representative of Jesus Christ before the Almighty God, and in the name of the Father and of his Son Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I now pronounce you one together. You are now husband and wife. Whom therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. They would announce what has just taken place. And at that moment in the wedding, they are a married couple. They are no longer getting married. They are married. And so everything that happens from that moment, that covenant, 
onward is simply stuff they've chosen to do as a married couple for the first time. Often what they will do is kiss. Maybe not for the first time. <laughs> communion. Many couples will take communion at that point, saying the first thing we're going to do as a married couple is receive the symbols of grace and give them to one another, saying that we're founding our marriage on grace. We've received much grace from Jesus Christ. We will give grace to each other. They often light a unity candle saying, we were two separate lives. We are now joined together into one common family. And we work together as a team from here on out. Then there's the presentation of a brand new family to the community. The pastor will have them stand there and say, it is my honor, ladies and gentlemen, to present to you Mr. and Mrs. Whomever. Mark T. Farquhart. <laughs> Whatever. And then they march down and everybody is, is celebrating a new family, a new household has entered the community. All of this is done before witnesses, God being first of all, but also the whole congregation as a witness. And they are being asked to remember the promises that are made. When you go to a wedding, you are bearing witness. You're, you would be one, you are a living testimony saying, I heard them make the promise. I heard the promise made. You become part of the record that that covenant was made to each other. And then you also do another thing. You commit yourself to help them fulfill their covenant. You are committing and saying, I will pray for you. I will support you. We will do all that we can to help you to keep the promise you've just made to one another. Pretty serious responsibility, isn't it? not just going and watching. It's, it's really has a great purpose. Now, for a marriage to be what God wants, I believe there has to be at least these seven essential attitudes. Let me, let's go through those. Number one is extremely important. When people enter into this marriage covenant, they, they need to understand this. You are God's gift to me. Say that with me. It means that our marriage is based on the will of God. By marrying you, I am submitting to what is the will of God. God has told me, you are for me and I am for you. The foundation of marriage is not love. The foundation of marriage is not love. You ever heard people even change the vows and say, as long as we both shall love? Well, that'll last till Thursday. <laughs> it will. Love is so fickle. Isn't it? I mean, there's some days you're A number one, and other days you're down there in the, the low categories. It's just like that with this thing. And if you base your relationship, if this covenant was somehow based on love, it won't last. What it's based on is the will of God. If you enter into a, to a covenant, you do it because you believe God has given you this person. And then you love because God has given you this person to love. You choose to love. You, you say, we're going to have to do what we're going to have to do, but I've got to love you. And only you. Which is quite the challenge. But God is with you in it and will help you. It was uh, probably about 36 years ago. Um, I had, um, was sitting in my Volkswagen in front of a post office in northern Minnesota. And somebody was getting mail, and I was listening to uh, the radio while they were in the post office. And the, we only had one radio station in Bemidji. It was KBUN for Paul Bunyan. Um, and so listening to the radio station, and, and they gave the upper five state weather report. Let me fill in a little history. The, the year before, I had gone on to a, 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 a kind of a group 
date. And I had, I had noticed a, a, a woman by the name of Mary Schwant. And, uh, but I had not fixated on it or anything like that. It just thought she was pretty and nice girl and had gone on. I have to tell you, I had, I'd, I'd had a pretty full year the year before. I'd, I'd come out of a boys' school, and I decided to make up for lost time. And so <laughs> I, I dated my way through an entire corridor of, of young women and, and, and enjoyed every minute of it. And I, and I was on a bad course because you get this variety thing, it's wrong. And it's certainly not what my Heavenly Father wanted for me. And so there I was that summer in front of the post office listening to this thing. And the weather announcer went down this list of cities and he said, La Crosse, Wisconsin, I don't remember what it was, clear in 65 or something like that. And uh, as he said it, it was like a bell went off in the car. It was, it was kind of a hmm. <laughs> And Mary's face came into my, my mind. Not a word was spoken. That was all that was done. I knew what I was hearing. I looked up at the ceiling of the car and I said, you have got to be kidding. I mean, I don't know this woman. I've never, I, you know, I didn't go on to say that. I just was shocked. It was like my father was saying, enough of this playing around stuff. Stop it. I have somebody for you. I want you to know God has somebody for each of us that is not called to be single. He has somebody. It, and, he, and it's his choice. He's real old-fashioned, isn't he? He didn't ask you to find one. Doesn't think you're smart enough. Knows you're not. But he has, it, he makes the pick. That fall... The, the school had a thing they, they would call SWAF night. Sophomores welcome all freshmen. What it was, of course, was the, fresh, the sophomore men lining up waiting for the freshman women to come in. And indeed, I was in the line. Hey, baby. You know. no. Is that an ugly picture or not? And I'm standing there, you know, with everybody else. And in walked Mary. The minute I saw her, boy, did that... Reminder, come back to me. And I just followed her right in. And she no more hung her coat on the hook than I was right behind her and said, hi there. You know? <laughs> I was like, hi. That was the last time I've ever had anything to do with another woman. That was the end right there. Because she was the one for me. God has a will in this thing. These, the, a covenant is something that's, that starts with the will of God, with him bringing to you the person you want. Now, I know there's complicated factors here. And some of you said, I didn't know the Lord. I just blundered into, I mean, I'm, I'm just talking to you about the ideal, about what God wants. And I would say that those who are married, it is now his will. It is his will, and he will help you in it. And the same grace will be there. Because though... Mary and I, the Lord ordained it. it was, it's not been a cakewalk. It's not been something we didn't have to deeply... I'm, you're in this service, yeah. Uh, I, if you see me going over here for... She's starting to really laugh. It, it has not been uh, easy. I, w I would say that for us, our first five years of marriage were very hard because I was going to school full-time, I was also working in a church at least 30 hours a week. And Mary was working from 3 to 11, 3 to 11 uh, every day. So we never saw each other. And in those five years, I would say by the end of those five years, if we could have, both of us would have said, this isn't working, let's just drop it. We would have walked away. Only there was a complicating factor. We both loved Jesus Christ. He was our Lord. And we knew what his word said. And we understood this, that we had made a solemn vow before him. We had promised. And there was no way out. We were stuck. We were stuck. What happens when you're stuck? You have only one option. If you can't flee, you have to grow. 
And so both of us begin the process of growing. I mean, one of the first things we did was we, we both wrote down on paper what our perceptions of our relationship were and then handed it to the other person, you know, and, and that was a shocking moment for both of us. Like, you think that? You, you think this? And it was, it was quite the process. But I want you to know something. God is faithful to us. See, when it's his will, and when you're submitting to his will, and you're seeking to keep your covenant, God will help you in the thing. doesn't mean it's easy. It means he'll help you in it. Now, 33 years later, um, I, I love Mary more than I've ever loved her in my life. I look at this, and I realize the great wisdom of God in who he gave me for a wife. I hope she feels the same. We won't ask. <laughs> we were two wildly different people. She is the daughter of a Lutheran pastor from Wisconsin. I'm a, I'm a wild-eyed charismatic from a divorced family in California. I mean, we were two different worlds. It wasn't a logical thing. And yet God puts that together. And her strengths and her gifts and her commitment has been essential for me and I have been I believe essential to release her and help her in her ministry and her calling as well together we've been strong and able to serve the Lord now let's move quickly down these points because as I've said this I think you're going to see how they fit first of all your your your, your spouse is intended to be God's gift for you second of all an attitude for marriage we make the promise I will be loyal to you physically mentally and emotionally I will crucify the flesh with its passions. I will love only you. I will not even look at another person or the picture of another person. I've heard people say you can look but not touch. That's malarkey. Absolute malarkey. You may not look. You may not even think. Whoa. How do you do that? You can do that. You can do it. You can do it. You t you, and in fact, one of the sad things is when, when people uh, are, are never, you know, they're not, they're not chased before marriage, they're not, they, you know, they, they, they indulge themselves in pornography, they have developed a lifestyle, an entire habit of looking to the point that some people could no more not look than they could fly. They are completely enslaved to this addiction and I'll tell you, you have a process to get out of it, but you can get out of it. But you can get to a place, and it's not like you ever get to a place where there aren't temptations, but you get to a place where you spot the temptation coming in, you take your mind and you put it on Christ immediately. And you can live in a peaceful place. You can live in a peaceful place. And I'll tell you what happens when you do that. Your spouse begins to look beautiful or handsome again and feel beautiful or handsome again. Because the comparison and, the, and that lecherous spirit is pulled out of your marriage. This is a very spiritual issue. There's this very strong demon that's involved that wants to invade. So when God says, I don't want you committing adultery, not even mentally. I want you pure and loyal. He's not a spoil sport. This isn't God coming along trying to take all of our fun away. What he's doing is taking all the demonic ruining of you away. And allowing you to really love. Allowing you to have, frankly, a, a joyful relationship physically. One that lasts. There's so much trouble in America because there's so much pornography. Let, I'm going to just say this short and sweet. Pornography is nothing more than mental adultery. It's all it is. You're simply adulterizing with pictures. Don't kid yourself. It is not a harmless thing. It is exactly what you think it is. We say as we enter a marriage, I'm in this for life. I like to joke when I, I don't do weddings to speak of anymore because of just the care that it needs to be given to each couple. But I love to joke about the, the jail door closing. Do you hear it close? But it, and it does. Make no mistake about it. You're stuck. And, and yet the good part of that is that it forces us to grow. It drives us to prayer and depending on the Holy Spirit. 
And much has changed in both Mary and me. I would say, quite frankly and honestly, that I think the majority of the changing was needed in me. And she gave me the grace to grow up and to be healed. There's been some things that have changed in Mary, but my, I had the more, the more serious and the deeper issues I did. And yet, because there was a marriage covenant, and because we both loved the Lord, we prayed our way through it, and we walked our way through it. And I'm sure there's growth still taking place. I don't suppose you ever stop. But we're at a very happy place. And our life is peaceful and, and joyful and, and, and is releasing ministry, which is a point I'm going to get to in a minute. That's the whole purpose of it. Jesus is the center of our marriage. You will find this, that the closer you draw to Jesus, the closer you draw to one another. When you're spiritually healthy, you'll be in love. When you're spiritually sick, you won't. It works like that. Jesus is the head of our family, is the center of our marriage. It isn't my leadership. Jesus is the Lord of our household, always has been. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. God has brought us together for a purpose. Now, here is why the devil goes so profoundly after marriage. God does not put a couple together primarily for happiness. It isn't meant to be your happiness. That isn't the goal. He puts people together for his glory. To serve him. He literally forms a miniature church. And it is the foundation of all of human society. Out of this church, of this man and this woman coming together in faith, loving one another, working as a spiritual team, you have the very heart of the ministry of the body of Jesus Christ. It's not a gathering like this. It's the family. That's where real life takes place. And real discipleship takes place. So, of course, what's the devil going to go after? He's going to try to divide you. Just the way he tries to divide a gathering like ours. He tries to set us at each other. He does all sorts of things. The same attacks he puts against a congregation. He puts against a miniature congregation, your marriage. He has a plan that goes beyond this. He has a plan to use you. A plan to bless others through you. He's called you together for his service and picked you for each other to form a team. The father is to be the pastor of his home. I, I say this because in our culture right now, this is just absolutely a foreign concept. We are this egalitarian thing where everybody's the same and Certainly, if anybody leads, it shouldn't be the man and the whole, whole thing like that. And we think of leadership as domination and exploitation and et cetera, et cetera. Let's just, can I say something healthy for a minute in terms of this? God calls the husband and the father to be the pastor of his home. Here's what that means. He is the first one to be praying. He is the one responsible for spiritual education and, and care of his family. He is the one responsible to make, the, to first and most deeply make personal sacrifices for his household. This has nothing to do with dominating, exploiting, and using his family. He is their pastor who lays his life down for them like the shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. That is hardly exploitive. And what I have found is when, when people try to grasp authority, say, I'm the head around here kind of thing, you've immediately lost it. You have fear, but you don't have authority. When you serve with the heart of Jesus Christ, when you are the one in prayer, when you are making decisions based on what God wants, not what you want, when you have that kind of heart and you are loving your family like that, there is a natural authority you can't get rid of. It is put on you by God. And not only do your children and wife not resent it, they are delighted. In your leadership. Because God has given it to you. So I just want to say that. In the middle of all of this confusion. God's ways aren't. The ways of a modern America. I'll tell you that. But his ways work. And they're right. So I say that. So that you, you men. It is not your wife's job. To do all the praying. And to be the religious one. While you sort of spend your time. In foolish hobbies. 
You are the spiritual leader of your home. And God's not going to take change his mind because you just haven't wanted to do it. You simply put your entire family into trouble until you pick up the mantle God has given you. And thank heavens for the men that I see. And I want to say that, having, having just given a strong word like that, I am, well, I am seeing more and more men, I mean many of them, I would almost say in my heart most of them, are rising up and really leading and what blessing it is. And you're ministering every... I, I went to the men's retreat. One of the joys I have at the men's retreat is I always look for tables where maybe there's a chair next to somebody I don't know. And so I wait until everybody's seated and then I go get near somebody. They can't get away from me. They're stuck. <laughs> and I get to... At every table I sat at this year, without exception, several men were talking about the ministries that God had in their lives. I mean, it was... It was from ministering with children and, and big strong men uh, with tears coming down their face talking about what God was doing with children or with worship or with prison ministry or with, it just went on and on. And I came out of there and I said, what an honor to be leading a group of brothers like this. What an honor. So I, this is not a general scolding. I'm just laying down the, the value system. I think great things are happening, brothers. But thank you for doing it. Thank you for rising up. Here's my thesis. When men rise up and take their place, women are finally free to minister and to grow in their place. You see, the thing the Lord has asked of me, he says, all right, Steve, Mary has helped you all these years with your calling. You release her now and you support her in her calling. So she's called as a missionary. And she would, she would leave for Borneo tomorrow if she wasn't married to me. So, but she's our missions director and she leaves tomorrow for Kazakhstan. <laughs> uh, she probably does four missions a year, you know, with Royal Family Kids Camp and, and our summer mission and whatever. But I actually support her in her calling and her ministry as she supports me in my calling and my ministry. We're a team. We're a team. And so are your families. And when we realize that and think that way, it becomes a great fruitful thing and a joy. God intentionally put two very different people together so our family would have different gifts it needs. Have you noticed that your spouse is very different from you? Yes. Only occasionally do I see people that are really, really pretty similar in their gifts. It's very rare that I ever see that. Usually they are polar opposites and God designed it that way. You didn't get the wrong person. You got the right person. I want you to understand something. God is going, first of all, right after our sinful human nature, which is always to love people like ourselves. Isn't it? It's easy for me to love people like me because that's what is the ideal anyway. This is the heart of racism. This is the heart of classism. This is the heart of sexism. This is the, the whole thing is we love ourselves. It's like, aren't I wonderful? And everybody who's different from me in any way is, is decreased in value. And so God, knowing that human heart, puts two very different people together and says, love each other as Christ loved the church. And in learning to do that, you are learning to be like God. He's giving you his heart. And then the other part of this is, he literally brings, he deliberately gives you gifts, and he also deliberately takes gifts away from you and keeps them from you. There are things you can do very well and things you do very badly, and he's designed it that way. And then he puts somebody with you who's quite different from you to bring the other parts of gifts that you don't have. And then insist that the two of you work in harmony and work together. And then in, the, in that harmony and in that partnership comes the real blessing. Now you'll find your family has the resources they need to prosper. It's designed that way. May I add, so is the church, isn't it? You see? When you begin to re release people and, re and, and, and rejoice in the gifts that God gives them all differently, now you have a healthy church. You also have a healthy marriage and family with that same thing. And the last thing is simply this. The Bible will be our handbook in life. You have to make a choice, a profound choice. You either follow the counsel of this world, which you find at the checkout stand in the grocery store, 
and on TV, or you follow the Bible, and they are wildly different. Yesterday's newspaper had a letter to, the, to um, a dear so-and-so, and I don't remember which it was. It wasn't Dear Abby kind of thing, but it was one of those. And some young woman wrote in, and she said, uh, I, do, I do not read this stuff. I just happen across it. <laughs> no, I don't. I hate this stuff. But I, 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 I came across this thing and I read it. And she says, I'm a young woman and I've been living with a man for five years who's younger than me. Uh, but I'm in love with a guy. I fall in love with a guy who's 30 years older. Now I'm trying to get rid of this young guy. And I keep trying to tell him I don't love him anymore. And he just looks so hurt in his eyes it makes me feel guilty. And um, what, do I, what should I do, dear so-and-so? And dear so-and-so with her great profound wisdom said, oh, you have to be true to yourself. You can't be bound to this poor young sucker. You need, you need to cast him aside and explore all your potentials, you know, kind of thing. Now, those kinds of articles are the kind of counsel and wisdom that the world is giving. I did not get angry when I read it. I was brokenhearted. Let me tell you what it looks like to me from a spiritual position. I see a young woman who was already uh, squandered her chastity and her ability to commit to a husband, to be the mother of children, and to have a, a, love, a beautiful life. She already has become loose and uncommitted. She's been living with a man now whose heart has fallen in love with her, and he's now, she's now going to tear his heart out and leave him by the side of the road. For a man who's 30 years older, oh, there's no mystery here. This is true love, isn't it? Some old dog <laughs> is probably dumping his wife, probably has children who are now heartsick as they long for a spiritual leader, a pastor of their home, who is now running out like a tramp Chasing after this young chickie. He's ruining his family. He's injuring his wife. Will there be happiness? Oh, not at all. And I'll tell you the sadness is over her. Over um, the man she's living with. Over this 30-year-old guy. Over his household. The anointing will not settle. There'll be no blessing of God. They're in the flesh. The ministry and calling. See, God designed her for himself. God designed her to serve him. God has purposes and plans. He wants to give her a husband. He wants to put her together into a marriage and give her, give her a household and a blessing and an anointing and a calling. It's all for naught. While she chases some sort of sexual satisfaction. What a travesty and what a sad thing. It's enough to make you cry. That's what I see. And then I see it in the movies and I see it on television as the norm, as the thing that ought to happen where it's being preached literally like a preacher would preach it, constantly saying, this is what you want to do. This is the way to happiness. This is the normal path. And God comes along in that darkness and he says, thou shalt not commit adultery. To be a prude? No. No. To protect us, to bless us, to let his anointing settle on us, to let us build a family, to let us grow and heal and become Christ-like. Without this commandment, it won't happen. Something about your sexuality is one of the deepest things in your, in your nature. I, I don't think sin has touched a deeper thing in the human condition than our sexuality. Nothing more profoundly has been affected by sin. And nothing will keep the anointing, keep the blessing, keep the ministry from happening than letting that run its course. Now, when I thought about serving communion before or after the sermon, I decided given the subject, it would be better after. I don't mean to bring condemnation. I'm not trying to do that at all. Why don't Rather than being, responding and feeling condemned, 
let's say to the Lord, we love your word. Your ways are true. We may have made trouble. We may have a history where there's all kinds of brokenness. But that doesn't matter. Lord, we're choosing to obey you now. Taken right where we are. Taking right where we are. We choose to go into our future obedient to this command. And to let you bless us. Remember the distinction. There's grace. Grace means that we go to heaven by faith in Jesus Christ. But there's also blessing. And blessing means that the power of the Holy Spirit enters our present lives and transforms them for good and for prosperity. We want both, don't we? And so today as we come to the Lord's table, we're announcing grace. Grace to all of us because there's not a person in the room who've, who've obeyed the seventh commandment uh, even this week, probably, entirely. And so we have grace. We're covered by the mercy and the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm covered, you're covered. Hallelujah. I'm going to heaven even when I struggle. Praise the Lord. But I also have the word of God guiding me and I choose afresh to obey it and to walk in it because it, it's a blessing and it's life to me. Do you agree? Amen. So we come not under condemnation, but we come thanking the Lord for his word, choosing to obey him, seeking to submit, looking for how we can walk in the seventh commandment and the eighth and the ninth and the tenth. But not out of fear, but out of wisdom now. Amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.